Hey there, everybody. Uh, as you can see, I am back home again, finally, after uh, my recent travels. I'm very glad to be home. Um, uh, good to see you guys all again. Um, tonight, <clears throat> I'll give you the plan for tonight. Uh, tonight, we're going to focus on the Valinorian career of the Eldar. That's the, the one thing I didn't get to in my attempt to catch up last week uh, was the, the arrival of the elves and the, their invitation to Valinor. And we're going to look at some of that stuff tonight. Uh, some of them, actually, I think I'm going to save till the beginning of next time. But the sort of cool side effect of uh, of basically talking about the elves in that way uh, is that you know sort of doing this all at once is we're going to get to look at the whole trajectory. We're going to look from the you know from the first arrival of the elves in Valinor all the way through the departure uh, of the Noldoli. So um, that's. Um, that's the main sort of plan. What I want to focus on is sort of what I want to kind of remind us of a little bit here. Um, we talked about this at the very beginning. What I really want to try to get back to here um, is to sort of try harder than usual to resist just kind of making point-by-point -point comparisons with the Silmarillion. Christopher Tolkien does a fine job of, of sort of outlining the major differences between the published Silmarillion text and the Book of Lost Tales stuff uh, in his commentaries. Um, but I want to make sure that in our examination here, in our discussion here tonight, we go further than just sort of making a catalog of the differences. Um, I want to start by really getting into what we see here. What's the overall pattern? Um, what is the story of the elves and their arrival in and departure from Valinor as Tolkien is unfolding it here in the Book of Lost Tales? Remember, the Book of Lost Tales is you know him bringing together ideas that he's had and, and sort of bringing it together into a cohesive narrative. He's not fully successful in making it totally cohesive because he doesn't finish bringing everything together, but, um, but we see him working on that. So as he's doing that, as he's bringing all of these scraps of ideas that he's had, these stories that he's already written and concepts that he's already had as he's bringing them together, what is the story that we're getting here? Um, and then the next step after that is to start drawing some conclusions about the larger themes and ideas that we can see in that story. Two things in particular were really striking to me when I was reading this section. One is, uh, what Tolkien seems to suggest in these sections about the nature of evil. Hope, I hope that we'll be able to get to that tonight. And the other is about the role and nature of the gods, of the Valar. And we're probably not going to get to that tonight, so I think I'm going to save that for the beginning of next time. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's my plan. That's where we're headed. Um, so let's go back uh, to the beginning. Let's look at the first words that, uh, the first recorded words of any of the elves uh, in Tolkien's writing. Of course, not the first as they occur in Tolkien's writing. We've had elves talking all the way along here through the Book of Lost Tales, but you know what I mean. The first recorded historical utterance uh, of the elves. And that is when the three ambassadors come to Valinor. Then those elves were utterly dazed and astonied by the splendor of the light, whose eyes knew only the dusk, and had yet seen no brighter things than Varda's stars. But the beauty and majestic strength of the gods in conclave filled them with awe, and the roofs of Valmar blazing afar upon the plain made them tremble, and they bowed in reverence. But Manwe said to them, Rise, O children of Iluvatar, for very glad are the gods of your coming. Tell us how ye came, how found ye the world. What seemeth it to you, who are its first offspring? Or with what desires doth it fill you? 
But Nolome answering said, Lo, most mighty one, whence indeed come we? For meseems I awoke but now from a sleep eternally profound, whose vast dreams already are forgotten. And Tinway said thereto that his heart told him that he was new come from illimitable regions, yet he might not recollect by what dark and strange paths he had been brought, and last spake, in spake Inway, who had been gazing upon Laurelin while the others spake. And he said, Knowing neither whence I come, nor by what ways, nor yet whither I go, the world that we are in is but one great wonderment to me, and methinks I love it wholly, yet it fills me altogether with a desire for light." Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yes, they were astonied, Arthur, that is a, uh, that is a, that is a straight-up Middle English word, uh, astonied, um, people are always getting astonied in Maori, if you read Sir Thomas Maori, you'll find lots of astonied people, um, and illimitable is also a great word, D, may I agree with you, I love the vocabulary of the Book of Lost Tales, um, that's a way, you know, the, the sort of, style of the published Silmarillion is, I think, sort of, in its way, I find it even more archaic, but um, the vocabulary of the Book of Lost Tales is much more obscure than the vocabulary of, uh, of the published Silmarillion. Um, but I love it. I, I, I just love the words that Tolkien uses. Yes, as Brian says, they're deliciously obscure. Absolutely. And I just, I absolutely love it when Tolkien says things like astonied. That is, when he just unabashedly, without a, without a hint of self-consciousness, just takes a word which has been, you know, has not just like a word which has ceased being used hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but a word which has changed. You know, like the, the language has kind of left that by, you know, astonied is the word from which we get the word astonished. Right? I mean, it's, astonied is the direct, uh, you know, the, the, the direct ancestor of the modern word astonished. Um, but uh, that's okay. You know, he just uh, he just he just goes straight back to Estonied, uh, and uh, and that's fine. I love that. But anyway, okay. What I want to primarily do tonight, you know, I, I I've chosen a relatively large number of passages um, because you know there's some of these some of these moments and these these really important uh, speeches that people make, which are sort of obviously important. Doesn't take any great selection on my part to. To, to identify those. Um, but I want us to be focusing, again, thinking of what I said before, um, uh, focusing on trying to, to, to understand this story on its own terms, not just comparing and contrasting, but thinking about what we're being presented with here. Um, you know, I'm going to be making some observations about each one of these passages. I'd be interested to see your observations as well. So as I'm reading it, or when I finish reading it, feel free to just go ahead and tell me what struck you here. What things do you feel like we learn here? What do we learn about the elves? What do we learn about the Valar? Um, what does this uh, kind of show us here? Um, so, okay. Um, things that I noticed here. First, notice the 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 thrust of the questions of the things that Manway say to them, right? Um, Sarah King was just exactly anticipating what I was in the middle of saying. Sarah says that it's interesting that he asked what their desires are. Yes, that Sarah was exactly the first thing that struck me about this passage too. That the dominant note in Manway's speech to them is curiosity, right? The Valar don't understand the children of Iluvatar, and they want to, you know, tell us how you came, 
We have no idea. How found ye the world? We'd love to hear what it looks like from your point of view. Um, what seemeth it to you who are its first offspring? Um, and sort of thinking, the you know, how found ye the word? Does he mean the world? Does he mean in that way, like, the process by which you arrived? Uh, you know, that is to say, how found ye the world? Seems like it could be a restatement of question one, how ye came, or of question two, what seemeth it to you? Who are its first offsprings? Like, how did you find it? You know, what was it like to you? And I'm not sure which direction, actually, what he means by that question. Um, but, and to me, Sarah, as you're pointing out, the, the one to me most fascinating, with what desires doth it fill you, right? Um, it's like, that's the question that's really going to tell them about the Eldar, right? About sort of their hearts and what they're like. Um, do you uh, do you feel yourself filled with an unquenchable longing of any kind? <laughs> right? Remember the conversations we've been looking at before between Ariel and Merrily Turinki and you know the business about the uh, the unquenchable desires. Um, uh, it's uh, we see that of course not only does it in fact fill them with desire, but that that desire is anticipated by the Valor or even maybe hoped for. I'm not sure exactly how to read that, but. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Brian is uh, Brian Fatterini is uh, is uh, uh, reading into their questions, uh, sort of a craving for validation. How do you rate the world we have built on a scale of one to ten? Right? You know, if you, you could possibly fill out this customer satisfaction survey for us, uh, it would really help. Um, yeah, Brian, I was kind of thinking the same thing. Uh, you know, not in exactly those terms, but that is to say, when they say. How found you the world? What seemeth it to you who are its first offspring? There is this, there's this sense, of course, you know, we, we, we see there will be much emphasis as we go through the story on the relationship of the Noldoli with their craftsmanship, right? Um, and how much they love the things that they have made with their own hands. Well, our, you know, the world itself has been made by the Valar, right? So, you know, there's a sense there of, you know, well, we did make the world, right? And I don't see necessarily like a sort of a crude proprietary thing, like a pretty sweet, huh? Aren't we awesome? But rather, you know, that, that, that same kind of, that same kind of pleasure that the, Nol, that the Noldoli seem to take, not only in the making of their gems and looking at their gems, but of sharing their gems. Uh, so I think that that's, uh, uh, that that's definitely, uh, pretty cool. Um, yeah, Arthur says it's interesting that two of the ambassadors are yakking it up with the gods, but Inwe, the High King of all the Elves, is staring at Laurelin and thinking before he speaks. Um, yes, and and there I see that directly tied with that last question: with what desires doth it fill you? Inwe's got his answer right. It fills me altogether with a desire for light. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Yana, I agree. Yana says, uh, it's like Manway is unsure whether he should invite them to stay and wants to know if they would even want to. Yes, I think that they're sort of feeling out both what they should do and what the elves would actually want. Again, I think it's important to see that the Valar are definitely considering what the elves want. This is not a totally, you know, unilateral paternalistic decision on the part of the Valar. They're not, from the beginning, just being like, well, we will tell you, children of Iluvatar, what is best for you. Um, they seem to be kind of feeling out, not just, you know, what do you like, what is your whim, but rather, 
how are you made? You know, how are you put together? Um, can we get some hints from the desires that have been placed in your heart here at your beginning? Can we get some hints from that as to what Iluvatar's intentions are concerning you? You know, how are you programmed, basically, so that we can understand what, you know, what, what role you sort of are supposed to fill? Um, and Andrew, yes, Andrew McLaughlin says, I, I suppose this is the first chance to talk to creatures that aren't themselves. Yes, the children of Iluvatar would be the first sort of fundamentally different kind of creature that these people have ever met, right? I mean, there, there are plenty who are other than themselves, right? I mean, goodness knows the Valar are sufficiently individuals to, uh, you know, be meeting as separate people. It's not like they're all this, like, group mind or something. Um, but yes, Andrew, they're fundamentally alien to them in a way that none of the other Ainur are, 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 are alien to them. Um, so they're trying to, they're trying to understand them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Jim says, Jim Dexter says, I think it beautiful that Inway doesn't know where he came from or what his purpose is, but he thinks but he thinks he loves this world wholly. Yes, he loves it entirely. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I think that that is a really important statement. This is, uh, uh, Jim, something else that I was thinking about about this passage. I think that in Inwe's speech, you know, we see several things here. In the speeches of Nolome and Tinwe, Tinwe, remember, is Tinwe Linto, whose name is eventually going to be Thingol later on. Um, Nolame is the one who's going to become Finway. Um, th- in their words, we see these glimpses of, you know, these sort of fragmentary glimpses, uh, which are sort of mysterious. Uh, you know, these you know, the, the vast dreams, the illimitable regions, the strange paths, right? We get these glimpses of these uncertain and mysterious origins. We don't really learn much on, on a factual basis about where they came from. But we have this sort of general impression of their having been in contact with or having come from something that is beyond their description, beyond their comprehension, right? That seems to be what they're kind of groping at there. But then in Inway's speech, there are two sides here, right? Um, you know, Jim, just thinking, touching on what you were pointing to um, and, uh, uh, and you know, thinking about what... Um, uh, what you guys were, you know, you know, Arthur, what you were pointing to as well. He, he thinks, methinks, you know, methinks is not quite the same as another great Mallory word. Um, methinks is, is, is not only just a synonym of like, I think, like, you know, I, I kind of think about, you know, methinks is a little stronger than I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's, 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 it's a little more confident than than that. Um, Methinks I love it wholly is is a relatively strong statement, yet it fills me altogether with a desire for light. See both sides there? The choice that we are teetering on the verge of, right, is the big decision that the Valar are going to make, right? Are they going to bring the elves over to Valinor, or are they going to leave them out in the wide world? What is the destiny of the elves going to be? To embrace the world wholly, right? To be out in the whole world, in the great lands, in the wide world, or to be taken out of the great lands, to be taken out of the rest of the world, but be brought into the light, right? They can't, really. They're not going to have the opportunity to do both. 
to love the world wholly, and to satisfy their desire for light. Um, it seems to me that, that sort of the implication there, Inway doesn't. I'm not necessarily thinking that Inway is 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 literally anticipating it, um, but um, uh, uh, but that the implications are that there's going to be a choice between those two things, um, and that you know, and the and the yet as the connection between those things. Methinks I love it wholly, yet it fills me altogether with a desire for light. Um, uh, that yet does seem to suggest the uh, the sort of alternative. I love it, but it fills me with a desire for something else, which isn't in it. Right? That light is not there. Um, yeah, Carolyn is pointing out all of the alliteration in uh, in Inway's words. Um, I think that's uh, that's very good. Uh, whence I come, what ways, whither I go, the world we are in is but one great wonderment to me, and methinks I love it wholly. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, Sarah asks, do I think he desired light before he saw it? Well, I mean, you know, as Arthur was pointing out, he's looking right at it, right? I mean, he's looking at Laurelin when he says this, so it's not like he's speaking of something he doesn't know, right? I mean, he's looking at it, but yeah, I, I, I do think so. I do think so. I do think that basically, in saying this while looking at Laurelin, he's not saying yeah, I love the whole world, but now, right? Now that I see the trees, I'm here, man, right? I don't think that's what he's saying. Rather, um, he's expressing the desire that he has had, which he is now sort of seeing the satisfaction of, in some sense, right? Um, that seems to me the implication uh, of his words there. Um, oh, Jim, by the way, that's an excellent uh, 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 translation. Jim is uh, offering as a translation of methinks in that sense, not I think, but rather I believe, right? Um, I believe I love it wholly, right? That's, that's, that's stronger than I think I love it wholly, right? I, I think that's a good way to think about it, uh, Jim. Thanks for that. Um, Okay, so this is what we see of of the experience of the Eldar uh, at the very beginning. Um, then we get the description of the choice. Behold, even Melko, seeing where was the majority, insinuated his guileful voice into the pleading, and has nonetheless since those days maligned the Valar, saying that they did but summon the Eldar as to a prison, out of covetous and jealousy of their beauty. Thus often did he lie to the Noldoli afterwards, when he would stir their restlessness, adding beside all truth that he alone had withstood the general voice, and spoken for the freedom of the elves. Maybe indeed had the gods decided otherwise, the world had been a fairer place now, and the Eldar a happier folk. But never would they have achieved such glory, knowledge, and beauty as they did of old, and still less would any of Melko's reeds have benefited them. Read, of course, is another one of those great words. That this one, an Anglo-Saxon word that he's just, you know, reverting to uh, without uh, apology. Um, Melko's reads, meaning his counsels, his advice. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, what do you see here? Well, first of all, you s notice how Melko is turning this into an issue of 
freedom versus slavery from the beginning, right? This is the way that he is contextualizing things. Notice also the motivations that he is ascribing to the Valar as he is maligning them, saying that their desire to do this comes from covetous and jealousy. I would want to make sure I am uh, about 98% positive that Tolkien is here using the word jealousy in its old sense, um, in its Middle English sense, not in its modern English sense. And I think I've explained this before, but I can't ever remember which classes I've explained things in and which not. So I'm going to repeat myself, and I'll apologize to those of you who've heard me explain this before. Um, the old, uh, the old definition of jealousy is not the desire of something else that somebody else has. That's envy. Jealousy means wanting to keep and protect, to keep for yourself and to protect something that you have. So what he is, how he is characterizing the Valar is not being envious of the elves. Not that they're looking at the elves and saying, oh, we want what the elves have, so we're going to, uh, we're going to try to, um, uh, you know, to sort of get it from them or get it vicariously by keeping them or something like that. That's not, that, not only is that not what's happening, it's not even what Melkor is accusing them of. What he is accusing them of is of a dragonish outlook towards the elves. That the elves are like the treasure that the Valar want to build to keep in their hoard, right? Valmar is like the Valar's dragon hoard, and they're storing up the elves there, and they're going to okay, we probably shouldn't extend that metaphor more, like pile the elves in a pile and sleep on top of them. That's probably not what the Valar uh, were actually going to do. But that's 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 the metaphor that he's... Not that he's explicitly using a dragon metaphor, but uh, dragons are the most quintessentially jealous creature. Um, that, that kind of, like, I'm making a horde and guarding it thing. Um, is the perfect illustration. So, um, so again, it's that it's that desire. Now, this is a trend that we're going to be seeing all along, um, because the fact is that desire strikes pretty close to the truth. Right? They do desire the beauty of the elves. They do desire to have it with them. Um, they essentially are making a choice not to share the glory of the Eldar with the rest of Middle Earth. Right? They're going to gather it in to themselves. Um, this accusation, as many of Melko's accusations, are not groundless, right? It's, I think, still not a just uh, uh, accusation on his part, and yet we can see that it does actually match, or at least it does come very close to a desire which I don't think to be a you know, a, a corrupted desire that the Valar have to be with and to, um, you know, sort of enjoy the glory of the elves with them there in Valmar. Um, we'll come back to this oh, a bit later on when we, when, uh, when this stuff really hits the fan, uh, <laughs> later on in this, in this, in this story. Um, now, did the Valar make the right choice? Um, Oh, oh, uh, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Arthur, thanks for pointing that out. Where do we, do we, uh, um, do we talk about lust here? Did I miss that? Is lust in this passage, or did we get it, did we get it, uh, uh, did we get that in? Uh, just a caution, I would say, I can't remember if it's, I don't know if the word lust is used in this passage or not. And Arthur was just bringing it up. Yeah, the desire for the elves. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Arthur. Um, be careful of the word lust. 
um, when Tolkien uses it, again, especially with the way that he's using words in the Book of Lost Tales, um, uh, if he does use the word lust, it's almost certainly not in the sexual context. That word was not a sexual word, or rather, it was not in any way restricted to sexual desire. It was used uh, equally of all desire. Um, uh, and the uh, the verb form uh, list, uh, that is, uh, you know, uh, if, uh, as they listeth, uh, for instance, um, uh, is a, is a, a word that Tolkien certainly does use. So if you come across that word, just be cautious about it. Don't uh, don't start thinking in again in modern terms of of sort of like perverted sexual desire. That's almost certainly not what Tolkien is talking about. Um, uh, anyway, sorry. Yeah, um, look at look looking at the choice that they make. And again, my question is: Do the Valar make the wrong choice? Can we look at this and say, "Boy, did the Valar blow it"? Right, you know, if they hadn't done this, everything would have been different. Everything would have been better. Really, a lot of the you know suffering of the history of Middle Earth is really down to this bad call that the Valar made. Um, maybe, indeed, had the gods decided otherwise, the world had been a fairer place now, and the Eldar a happier folk. And the Eldar a happier folk. That's a pretty. Uh, a pretty strong statement. I mean, okay, given obviously the uh, the the outer world was going to suffer by taking the elves away from them, right? If we if we if we leave the elves in the outer world and have them, you know, blessing the outer world and 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 you know making stuff of it and scattering gems everywhere and whatever, then you know that it was going to be nicer, you know, um, than it's going to be without them and with nothing, right? So uh, nothing except humans, anyway. Whatever. We'll come back to that, but um. Uh, but that second one, and the Eldar and happier folk, that concession, that the Eldar might have been happier had they not been brought to Valinor. But never would they have achieved such glory, knowledge, and beauty as they did of old. And still less would any of Melko's reeds have benefited them. Now that last bit sounds to me just like a rider, right? Um, that it sounds almost like an attempt to clarify there. When weighing this possibility, when saying, you know, maybe the Valar were wrong, he's just said in the previous paragraph that Nelka was saying this was a bad idea, or at least was putting himself forward as saying that this was a bad idea. Um, so in opening the question, hey, was this a bad idea? That, you know, that, that last phrase seems to be a desire to just sort of make it perfectly clear. Um, but don't think that it's not that Melko was right, right? Because Melko obviously wasn't right about this, and it's not that you know Melko was actually giving them the right advice. That Melko was right and the Valar were wrong. Let's just clear that up right off the top, right? But even having, uh, uh, even having uh, uh, cleared that up, what we have is seeing both sides of this question, right? Um, did the Valar make the wrong choice? Probably, yes. That is, we're we're told of what what both sides look like or might have looked like. On the one hand, had the Eldar stayed in the Great Lands and the Outer Lands, the world would be a fairer place. Now, the entire world would be blessed by the Eldar in ways that only bits of it have been, um, and the Eldar themselves would have been happier. Those are two pretty huge things. Now, on the other hand, they would never have achieved. You know, having gone to Valinor, they. They achieved glory, knowledge, and beauty far beyond anything that they would have had. So had they stayed in Middle-earth, it would have come at a price, right? They did gain things that they wouldn't have gained. 
had they not gone to Valinor. But it's a little hard to look at this and not say, mm, you know, on balance, yeah, I think that was probably that was probably the wrong choice. But then again, you know, you can look at it and say, maybe there was no right choice. Exactly. Um, uh, it's a little bit hard. Yeah, exactly. Do you mean if they hadn't seen the light, they wouldn't have been so great? Yeah, they wouldn't have it have they wouldn't have had as much light to share had they not seen it themselves. Um, yeah, Brian says we're clearly invited to judge this for ourselves. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Um, Yeah, Chuck says every choice has a price. It just depends on what you are willing to pay. And Brandon shows how the reader is being given the benefit of hindsight, right? Which is kind of unusual, right? And in fact, I, I agree, you know, Brian, coming back to what you were saying, the way in which the teller of this story, who is Lindo, right? We know who the teller of this story is. Um, uh, so remember, we have the frame where the story is being told. It's not just a disembodied narrator like we get in the published Silmarillion. This is a character speaking to another character. We have both a teller and an audience of this tale, and Lindo and Ariel, who are going to, uh, you know, converse about it at the end of the, you know, sort of comment on it and reflect on it at the end of the story. Um, so, so Brandon, of course, in that sense, the speaker has hindsight, right? And the... Um, listener, and we are listening in with Ariel, uh, we're invited to apply that same hindsight to the situation, right? But again, I think what we're getting here is not necessarily a, uh, boy, this is a black and white, the Valar blew it kind of situation, but rather, you know, yeah, there were ser- there were consequences. There were serious consequences of this decision. But, you know, there were benefits too. Things would have been different. Um, you know, and a couple of you are uh, wanting to quote Leaf by Niggle here. You know, things might have been different, but they couldn't have been better. He doesn't say that explicitly, right? I think that that piece, um, and that piece doesn't even seem to me... I'm not sure if that concept is really here. Um I don't think I hear that tone exactly, that sentiment from Leaf by Niggle expressed here. I mean, I love that. Paz is one of my favorite Tolkien quotes of all time, but um, but I'm not sure we get it here. Um, we're invited, I think, to imagine that things might actually have been better had they not been invited over. Um, again, it's not black and white, you know, and it's not a disaster, but but it might have been might have been better. I think. The Valar made the wrong call. Um, even though, again, there would have been consequences had they uh, had they made the the other call. But let's move ahead and look at um, uh, look at the beginning of the corruption. Um, here's Melko to the Noldoli. Slaves are ye, he would say, or children, and you will. Bidden play with toys, and seek not to stray or know too much. Notice that sort of the condescension of that statement, right? Slaves are ye, or children, and and you will, right? If you'd rather not think of yourselves as slaves, fine. Think of yourselves as children, right? You're being bidden to play with toys, and seek not to stray or know too much. So, you know, 
if if it makes you feel better to think that you're being infantilized, okay, you're being infantilized, right? Um, or if you really want to look the thing in the face, you're being enslaved, right? Um, Good days may hap the Valar give you, as ye say, but seek to cross their walls, and ye shall know the hardness of their hearts. Lo, they use your skill, and to your beauty they hold fast as an adornment of their realms. A dragonish thing, that jealousy again, right? This is not love, but selfish desire. Make test of it. Ask for your inheritance that Iluvatar designed for you, the whole wide world to roam, with all its mysteries to explore, and all its substances to be material of such mighty crafts as never can be realized in these narrow gardens, penned by the mountains, hemmed in by the impassable sea. There's your prison walls, right there. There are your gates. Um... First, notice in this, you know, as I was saying before, there is much truth in what Melko says here, right? There is a strong element of truth. It's not to say that he is right in what he says, but Melko's temptations are always based on truth. Take, take the, you know, both the true nature of the situation and twist it, and to take the actual failings of the Valar, who clearly do have failings, and capitalize on them, right? Um, that's clearly the, uh, uh, the, the approach here. Second, notice the twisting of their motivations, right? Um, it's one thing for him to say, ask for your inheritance, Right, Iluvatar designed for you to roam the wide world. So go roam the wide world. Ask them. If you don't think you're prisoners here, go tell them you want to go back. Go tell them you want to go back to the outer world. Right, and see what they say. And then you'll find out whether or not you're prisoners. Test it. Uh, you know. Uh, 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 yeah. Um, Seek but to cross their walls, and you shall know the hardness of their hearts. But notice he doesn't go he goes beyond that he doesn't just say you have a right to go wherever you want to you have a right to you know your inheritance is this whole world you have a right to go there he doesn't just say that notice how he characterizes sort of preemptively characterizes their own desires remember the uh that the business about their desires sarah that you picked up on so quickly in that earlier passage the valar are keen to learn you know, Manwe is is keen to learn. What do you do? What are your desires? Tell us about them, right? And uh, Melkor, instead of doing that, is twisting them, is shifting them, is tempting them to pervert their own desires. Notice where this happens: the whole wide world to roam. Yeah, that's good. That seems to be what they were designed to do, with all its mysteries to explore. That's good exploring the mysteries, right? They seem to have, especially the Nildoli, uh, you know, a sort of a natural kind of curiosity to understand and uh, and learn about things, right? Okay, that's good. And all its substances to be material of such mighty crafts as never can be realized in these narrow gardens penned by the mountains, hemmed in by the impassable sea. All of the world will be your raw materials, right? Now it's suddenly like a means to an end, Right now, it's not go out and explore the world. Right to explore its mysteries. 
now go out and achieve mastery over the world, right? Go out and make the world a means to the end of your own craftsmanship, right? Um, your uh, your desire to make things is restricted here, right? He's playing on that sub-creative desire of theirs. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Brian was just uh, in the middle of typing this as I was uh, talking about this before. That contrast between Manway's words and Melkor's words. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, instead of that, instead of asking what do you want, Melkor seizing on that either or nature of what Inway says. Light is limiting you. Seek instead the love of the world you've left behind. Yeah, Brian, that's a really good way to 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 talk about it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so again, so you notice how he's sort of inviting them to take their own desire and the desires of the Noldoli to uh, explore the mysteries, to roam the world, to explore the mysteries of the world, and to, uh, you know, to perform mighty acts of craft. Those all seem to be good things. Those all seem to be part of their natures, the way that Iluvatar formed them. But again, you notice that gentle nudge in the attitude that Melko is doing. It's it's that that's a that last there is a very subtle temptation, I think, to sort of inviting them to take that one little step. Um Yeah, yeah. Uh and then in the middle, um notice again, and this is you know coming back to something we've already touched on. This is not love, he says, but selfish desire. Make test of it. It is not love, but selfish desire. It's an important distinction, right? A distinction between love and selfish desire, between the love of a thing and the possessiveness towards a thing, right? The two can look very much alike. Um, you know, I mean, you think of how... Uh, I mean, I, I immediately think as a parent of the way that those two things... And there's kind of a parental relationship. I mean, children, he brings it up at the beginning of this passage, right? Parental kind of relationship between the Valar and the Eldar. or Yeah, and the Eldar here. Um, but even you sort of thinking in a parental relationship, how easy it is to cross that line, right? Between, I love you for yourself and I want what's best for you, uh, and I want you to do what I want, right? And I want you to follow my image of what is best for you, and uh, you know, get that, that line between love and selfish desire. Um, that line between I want to protect you and I want to keep you in my horde, right? Um, the line can be really fine, and Melkor is deliberately blurring the line between those two things. Are the Valar guilty of wanting the Eldar with them? Yes, of course they are. Um, what he's doing, he's taking what is genuinely their love and inviting the Noldoli to interpret it, rather, as selfish desire. Um, do they want the Noldoli to be with them and close to them? Yes, of course they do, right? And that is an expression of their love. But it could well be an expression uh, of... Uh, of of selfish desire, um, yeah, yeah, um, 
Yeah, Dima was just saying she was just thinking of parenting as well. Yeah, it's definitely what I think of. Now, Alyssa makes a wonderful point. Alyssa says, resonating with the frame, there's an invitation to compare and contrast with the way the human children are guarded by the elves. Remember all those children in the College of Lost Play? Um, From straying too far and knowing too much, wandering in sleep. It is considered in the elves a kindness, but Melko darkens the protective impulse on the part of the Valar. Um, Yeah, Alyssa, I think it's a really interesting parallel to think about. Um, and you think especially of the way in which the sort of implicit way the um, when we read that stuff, Alyssa, about uh, you know the elves and the path of dreams and the children who wander off and don't come back and the elves trying to keep you know prevent that from happening because they know the sorrow that happens back in the world when the child is lost. Um, but of course, we know the traditional fairy stories, right? We know what Tolkien seems to be alluding to. We have heard the the story about those elves who steal children, right? Who lure children away or swap them, right? You know, who replace uh, children, uh, uh, human children with a changeling elfish child, right? Um, we know those legends. What What's happened there, right? Well, that's... We're being told by the elves what's really happening behind the scenes. No, 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 they're not malicious, right? The elves aren't malicious. They're not stealing children. They're trying to prevent the children. They're trying to protect the children. But how easy does that same phenomenon on the other side come to look like theft, come to look like like selfish desire instead of love, right? I think it's a really fascinating parallel. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Timothy says, um, Melkor seems to be making it an either-or choice. Light here or the outer world. Uh, While the gods are suggesting, by their lack of certain uh, certain domination, that the elves can visit Valinor and take its light out into the world uh, only lit by the stars. Possibly. The problem, Timothy, is that maybe that's the plan. Maybe they do plan at some point to open the gates and say, okay, Eldar... Go forth now, right? Now you've been given the light. Now you have been blessed with light. Now your glory and beauty and everything has been increased. Now go forth and spread that light more effectively out into the world. Maybe that's the plan. They don't say that. And the Eldar don't know that. And of course, we'll never know if that was the plan. (laughs) Because that's not the way things unfolded. Um, but, um, But certainly, that's never explicitly said that that was the Valar's plan. If it, it does seem that they're trying to separate them from the outer world, both for their protection and um, and one, we'll get back to some of their other motivations for this. Um, but um, but certainly, it's not hard for Melko to make that sound really bad under the circumstances. Um, notice what happens. Notice what happens with the celebration, the festival that they're celebrating. Um, readers of the Silmarillion will remember, of course, the fateful times of festival, which seem always to lead to disaster. When everybody celebrates a festival, your city is guaranteed to be sacked by surprise or whatever. And you know, my undergraduates uh, in Tolkien classes very early on uh, came to the 
the obvious conclusion that the last thing you ever want to do uh, if you are an elven civilization is get together to celebrate anything. Um, no parties from now on. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of easy to see where they draw that conclusion in the Silmarillion with the fall of Gondolin and the darkening of Valinor and, uh, and everything else. Um, uh, and I love the sort of distant echo of that in The Hobbit, right? When the, uh, the uh, wood elves are, are celebrating their feast and, you know, darn invisible hobbits lets their dwarf prisoners out. Uh, but anyway, um, I also love the fact that it sort of explains why the wood elves were so jumpy in the woods, right? Here they are at a time of festival and all of a sudden people are jumping out of the woods at them. You'd be a little jumpy too uh, if you had their, their, their tradition. But what is fascinating about the Book of Lost Tales here is it goes so far beyond um, presenting us with the time of festival as merely an occasion, merely, as it were, a distraction, right? While they're all occupied with the festival, I'm going to sneak and do these other things. Um, we start off um, with a full... Uh, uh, we start off with a, with a full description of what the festival is like. Um, then was all that host marshaled before the gate of Valmar, that is, the host of all three of the elven kindreds, uh, the Solo Simpi come to, uh, and at the word and sign from Inwe, as one voice, they burst in unison into the Song of Light. This had had Lirilo written and taught them, and it told of the longing of the elves for light, of their dread journey through the dark world led by the desire of the two trees, and sang their utmost joy, beholding the faces of the gods, and their renewed desire once more to enter Valmar and tread the Valar's blessed courts. Then did the gates of Valmar open, and Nornare bid them enter, and all that bright company passed through. There Varda met them, standing amid the companies of the Manir and the Suruli, and all the gods made them welcome, and the feasts there were in the great halls thereafter. Um, notice what this time of festival does, right? I think it's it's fascinating. And the narrative, I think, really strongly emphasizes the significance of the fact that it's it's not just any old festival. It is at this festival that Melkor strikes, in Melko, sorry, strikes in the way that he does in this story, right? It is not just the nature of the celebration. Not only is it not just a distraction, it's not even just a, a, just a, a, a reminder, you know, you might think, you know, like many, the purposes of many celebrations are reminders, you know, let us, I, and I think, for instance, of the of the Jewish festivals, right, let us celebrate Passover annually, um, in order to remember, you know, this event, let us celebrate, uh, you know, Purim annually, in order to remember this event, right, that's a very, that's a very common uh, tradition, you do a celebration in order to keep the memory alive of an important thing, right, and on the one hand, that's what this festival does, but notice, it goes beyond that. It goes beyond simply reminding them of this thing. It is a reenactment of this thing. It's a recapitulation of the thing. Because it's not just a remembering this thing that was done to our ancestors. They themselves did this. You've got this same group of elves who showed up at Valinor, um, and the Valar who welcomed them. So it's like every, what is it, every 21 years, right? Every 21 years, uh, the... The, uh, the, the, the Eldar come and they knock on the gates again, and the Valar welcome them into Valmar, and they do, you know, they do the whole thing again. And that image, um, that image of the gates opening 
and them being bidden to enter, and the elves passing through the gates, and Varda standing there to meet them. Um, uh, I couldn't help but think, and maybe it's just because I was just doing a uh, a guest podcast discussion um, with SSF Audio or SFF Audio about uh, uh, Tom Bombadil this past weekend, but. Um, I couldn't help but think of Goldberry, and remember that that really peculiar image um, of uh, the, the the sort of strange simile that uh, Tolkien's narrator uses in the Fellowship of the Ring to describe to try to capture Frodo's sense of the experience of meeting Goldberry right at the threshold of her house. Um, you know that it's like a, a a traveler who knocks at a rustic cottage and is suddenly greeted by a fair young elf queen, um, uh, and that sort of the marvel of that you know the wonder of that and this is like an order of magnitude above right to have the gates open and there is varda the queen of light herself their desires for light varda is the uh, is the vala who is most closely associated with L- light is her province in the same way that um you know that that earth and making are aules or the you know the sea is almost varda is the vala of light and there she is the vala of light herself welcoming them standing there in the gate and bringing them into Velmar. It's a beautiful moment, I think. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so that's the significance of this particular festival. We're being reminded in this moment, they are being reminded in this mo- moment of the wonder of Valinor. You know, this Valinor thing, it's not an awful idea. I mean, you know, you say what you want, maybe in retrospect, about like, maybe it would have been better had the Elder not come here, but you know what? This Valinor thing, yeah, in the short term, this is working out pretty well, right? I mean, this is this is really a great thing. This is really a glorious thing. Um, Carolyn, that's a really great way to think about it. Carolyn Morehouse says it's kind of a ritual where the Eldar reconsecrate their original act. Yes, it, it's it's very much like that. I think that's I think it's a, it's a very good way to think about it. Um, so, in this context, while this is going on, okay. Well, actually, it's not while this is going on. It's like the next day when they come in, and now now Manwe is speaking to them from Tenequetil, or sorry, from Tenequetil. Um, I I mispronounced that. There's several Silmarillion words that I mispronounced from like early in my youth and spent the majority of my life mispronouncing, uh, and I still fall back into bad habits. Um, so I apologize. Um, most of my bad habits I get from Martin Shaw. I have to admit uh, the audio recording of the Silmarillion, um, uh, which I, I I read at a young or listened to at a young and impressionable age. Um, so anyway, my apologies. Teniquitil, which is clearly how it is pronounced, is that is how Christopher Tolkien pronounces it uh, in uh, the recordings we have of him reading bits of the Silmarillion. Anyway, so there's Manway on Teniquitil, you know. In giving them, you know, wisdom, telling them things. It's a, it's a really sacred moment. Um, and meanwhile, here's uh, Melko up to no good. But the good he is up to is not the darkening of Valinor. Instead, it's the theft 
of the jewels. But in this fateful year, Melko dared of his blasphemous heart to choose that very day of Manwe's speech upon Teniquitil for the carrying out of his designs. For then would Kor and Valmar and the rock-ringed dale of Sir Newman, of Sir Newman, sorry, be unguarded. For against whom indeed had Elf or Vala need to guard in those old days? So here he's thinking, they're all going to be there. There's not going to be any guards. I can just walk right in, right? No, actually. Now do they all, this is uh, Melko and the spirits of Mandos that he has corrupted to his cause, now do they, now they've they've stolen some swords uh, right from Makar's house, and now they're coming in. Now do they all steal into the vale of Sir Numan, where the Noldoli had their present dwelling, and behold, the gnomes, by reason of the workings in their hearts of Melko's own teaching, had become wary and suspicious beyond the want of the Eldar of those days. Guards of some strength were set over the treasures that went not to the feast, albeit this was contrary to the customs and ordinances of the gods. Now is there suddenly bitter war awake in the heart of Valinor, and those guards are slain, even while the peace and gladness upon Tiniquitil afar is very great. Indeed, for that reason, none heard their cries. That final image I find enormously compelling. It's this horrible irony, right, that the gladness of the people in Valmar dries out, dry, drowns out the cries uh, of 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 pain and and suffering, you know the cries for help of the of the Noldoi back in uh, uh, back in Sir Newman. Um, it's sort of horrible. Um, again, it is emphasized. This is not. It's not just a question of distraction, right? Um, there is a there is a fitness to the the you know the the sort of the blasphemous choice to align this act of rebellion with that particular celebration. Right, there's a kind of uh, perverse but poetic fitness to it. Right, he's been telling them, "You are the slaves of the Valar." Right, they are exploiting you. So he takes the time of their that moment of reconsecration, to use your word, Carolyn. Um, he takes that moment of reconsecration to exploit them, right? To steal from them. Um, see how they make you weak, right? See how they make you vulnerable. Um, yeah, yeah. But of course, we also see it's not as easy as he thinks, right? The Noldoli are already suspicious. They've posted guards. The Noldoli have already fallen from innocence before, Mel- before Melko strikes them, right? Before blood is shed, before the kinslaying, before the darkening of Valinor, we see the Noldoli, the evidence that the Noldoli are already corrupted in their own heart, they're already disobeying, flatly disobeying the ordinances, not just the customs, but the ordinances of the gods. Um, and this is kind of a big deal. Manway immediately emphasizes that it's a big deal. Now, Manway's response... Well, Manway's response isn't going to earn him too many friends, I think. There are uh, two speeches that Manway makes, one more puzzling than the last. Um, here's the first of them. Um, here's Manway's response. When the Noldoli come to him and they're like, Melko has come and stolen our jewels and killed our people, we demand vengeance. Then said Manway to them, Behold, O children of the Noldoli, my heart is sad towards you. What, like, oh, like, my heart is sad because you're sad, right? Like, you, you've you just suffered, like, people have taken your stuff and they killed your people, that's awful, I feel 
My, I feel horrible for you guys. No, that's not what he's saying. My heart is sad towards you, for the poison of Melko has already changed you, and covetous has entered your hearts. Lo, had ye not thought your gems and fabrics of better worth than the festival of the folk, or the ordinances of Manway your lord, this had not been. And Bruithwir, and Bruithwir go Maidros, and these and those other hapless ones still had lived, and your jewels been in no greater peril. Well, that's kind of tough, but I mean, it's tough but fair, I guess. But man, Manway, like, have a heart, dude. Uh, I, his response, seriously, is like, it's your own fault that your people died, right? Um, the death of the guards, if you hadn't posted guards, they wouldn't have been killed, right? And you wouldn't, the only reason you posted guards was because there was covetous in your heart, right? That you chose, the protecting of your jewels was more important to you than either this festival, which is very significant, as we've talked about, or the commands of your Lord. Since your jewels were more important to you than those, hearts being full of covetous as they are, you posted guards. And so those guards were dead. And what good did that do? Nothing. Now the guards are dead, and great harm is going to come of that, and your jewels got stolen anyway, right? So fat lot of good those guards ended up doing you, right? Ended up doing you all harm and no good. Okay, yeah, that's true enough, but dang, man, way. Um, anyway, he goes on. Nay. My wisdom teaches me that because of the death of Bruthwir and his comrades shall the greatest evils fall on gods and, men, and, and elves and men to be. Without the gods who brought you to the light and gave you all the materials of your craft, teaching your first ignorance, none of these fair things you love now so well ever would have been. What has been... So I get think about the significance of that, right? Remember what the festival was. This festival, which was less important to you than protecting your jewels, it was the celebration of the union of Eldar and Valar, the, br- the bringing in of the elves to the glory and light of Valmar, which is what enabled you to make your jewels in the first place. You wouldn't be able to have your dumb jewels if you hadn't come here in the first place, right? That's how much more important the, not only commemoration, but the, you know, sort of reenactment, reconsecration of your coming and your, you know, your, 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 your sort of binding here to Valmar. That's how much more important that should be than the mere products of that union, right? Um, I mean, talk about your, having your priorities not right, Noel Dolly. Come on. And he adds, what has been done may again be done, for the power of the Valar does not change. But of more worth than all the glory of Valinor and all the grace and beauty of Kor is peace and happiness and wisdom, and these once lost are harder to recapture. Yeah, yeah, certainly true. Again, priorities, people. Don't worry so much about your gems, right? You can make more gems, no big deal. Cease then to murmur and to speak against the Valar, or to set yourselves in your hearts as equals to their majesty. Rather, depart now in penitence, knowing full well that Melko has wrought this evil against you, and that your secret trafficking with him has brought you all this loss and sorrow. Trust him not again, therefore, nor any others that whisper secret words of discontent among you, for its fruit is humiliation and dismay. Um... Again, these are all good points, but 
he uh he kind of does sound like a bit of a jerk in saying these things this way right um uh, but you know one thing I would I draw attention to there the business about uh, you know what can be done once can be done again right um, uh, and that seems to be, I, I, I think the evidence of this is true when we see Feanor brooding later on um, it's not he ran out of stuffs to make the Silmaril right he, if he had more stuffs he could have made it uh, made more Silmarils you know more than three but um, but nevertheless what keeps him from making more Silmarils or greater than the original Silmarils is not, he, he's not faced with any impossibility. He does not, like the Feanor of the Silmarillion, know that there's no way he could possibly do that again. What prevents it is his brooding, right? As he broods on his father's death, he can't make anything anymore. All he does is brood on his wrongs. It is, in fact, as Manway says, um, peace and happiness and wisdom are more worth than all the glory of Valinor and the grace and beauty of Kor, right? Um, having lost happiness and peace and wisdom, Feanor is done as a sub-creator, and he can't go there anymore. Um, uh, so again, you know, there's much wisdom in what, um, in what Manway says here, but Goodness, this is kind of hard, right? And we get after this, Manway even sort of feels bad for this, right? And we'll we'll come back to the responses to this uh, uh, to this speech later on. When I talk about the depiction of the Valar, we'll we'll return to Manway here. Um, but um, but again, it's you know if we can get over the fact that he sounds like a jerk in saying it, his assessment of the situation is wise. But Feanor is having none of it. There brooded Feanor bitter thoughts, till his brain grew dazed by the black vapors of his heart, and he arose and went to Kor. There did he speak to the gnomes, dwelling on their wrongs and sorrows and their minished wealth and glory, bidding them leave this prison house and get them into the world. As cowards have the Valar become, but the hearts of the Eldar are not weak, and we will see what is our own, and if we may not get it by stealth, we will do so by violence. There shall be war between the children of Iluvatar and Ainu Melko. What if we perish in our quest? The dark halls of Ve be little worse than this bright prison. Um, Christopher Tolkien, in his commentaries, uh, mentions a lot how much you know tighter and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, you know, sort of more concise and powerful the later Silmarillion version of this story is. Uh, compared to the the way the plot is drawn out a good deal more uh, in this early version, and that's true. But there's a there are really interesting consequences to this particular choice. Notice Feanor is making this speech um, as cowards have the Valar become prior to the darkening of Valinor. The trees are still in bloom. He is wanting to leave and calling the Valar cowards even before. They are, you know, this the that the terrible stroke against the bliss of Valinor is uh, is, is struck by Ungoliant and Melko, um, Ungoliante. Sorry. Uh, anyway, um, so I think it's it's fascinating to see the way that the thing develops, the way that we see the hearts of Feanor and the rest of the Noldoli darkening, um, gives the a, a very different 
force to the entire story. We are seeing this slow decline, this slow erosion uh, of the elves. We are, we, are, we are being given not just a prolonged temptation by Melka. We only get that one little flash of, of his, his procedure of temptation. But rather we see this process by which they slowly begin to shift away, by which their hearts go dark well before the city itself has gone dark with the destruction of the trees. Um, Feanor's speech is arrogant, yes. It's short-sighted, yes. Um, but uh, that point that he makes about the dark halls of Vey is kind of a good one. Um, what's the point of staying here, he says. You know what this reminded me of? Um, I'm going to compare it to the Silmarillion, but not not directly, uh, or that is, not to the analog passage. It reminds me of what Huor says to Turgon in the Silmarillion. Remember when uh, when, when Hurin and Huor are, are trying to uh, get Turgon to let them go from Gondolin, right? I know nobody's supposed to leave Gondolin, but look, man, we're mortals, right? Um, we want our chance to fight against Morgoth, and, you know... We're not getting any younger in here. You guys, the Eldar, you can wait around for centuries until you get your chance. But, you know, we're on the clock over here, right? So please, let us go while we're still young. Um, there's almost an element of that, don't you, don't, don't you think, in what Feanor says, right? Like, you know, we... Um, the Valar might be sitting back... He calls them... He, he doesn't say that they're cowards. They have become as cowards. This is a very careful phrasing, right? They are acting in the same way that cowards would act. Not making any claims, just pointing that out, right? The similarity, the undeniable similarity between their actions and what the actions of a coward would be. Draw your own conclusions, right? Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, he... Uh, the Valar might do what they want, right? Maybe they're going to sit back and contemplate. Maybe they, you know, they have their own inscrutable means and their inscrutable ways. But you know what? Um, we, you know, the Eldar, we're different and we need to act differently. What if we perish in our quest, right? Like, what's the downside of doing this? Well, then we'll go to the Dark Halls of Ve. All right? Yeah. But um, we're... Constrain. Right. Right now, we're in a bright prison. Then we'll be in a dark prison. Honestly, what's the difference? Right. Um, yeah. Actually, um, that's uh, that's kind of true. Actually, um, again, true if you accept his premises uh, about the fact that where they are is like being in prison. Um, Manway now makes his other speech, which I have to admit I find extremely puzzling. Not the content of it, exactly. The strategy of it. Then Manway was grieved by their request. So after Feanor's speech, right, some of the Noldoli come to him and say, could you, you know, we want to, we want to, you know, blow this joint. Then Manway was grieved by their request to blow this joint, and forbade the gnomes to utter such words in core, if they desire still to dwell there among the other elves. And th- But then changing from harshness, he told them many things concerning the world and its fashion, and the dangers that were already there, and the worst that might soon come to be by reason of Melko's return. My heart feels, and my wisdom tells me, said he, that no great age of time... Now, okay pause here. When he says that, that transition, 
makes I I I. I I don't know about you, but I don't see where he's going with that sentence. That, that is, where he ends up going with that sentence is in a very different direction than where I thought he was going. Because he starts off by saying, man, the outer worlds are dangerous, right? I mean, it's it's perilous. And what's more, Melko's on the loose again. <clears throat> and he's going to get his R&D department revved up, and he's going to produce, you know, monsters and nightmares like you can't imagine. Um, and then he says, my heart feels and my wisdom tells me that no great age of time now uh, will now elapse ere what ere Melko establishes a kingdom of dominion and overruns the entire continent that might happen right um that would seem to follow from what he's saying but no instead what follows seems to be almost a non sequitur from what he has just been describing ere those other children of Iluvatar the fathers of the fathers of men do come into the world are we talking about the dangers, then, to the Eldar still? No, I guess not. And behold, it is of the unalterable music of the Ainur that the world come in the end for a great while under the sway of men. Yet whether it shall be for happiness or sorrow, Iluvatar hath not revealed. I know it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be a good idea or not, but it's going to happen. And I would not have strife or fear or anger come ever between the different children of Iluvatar. And fain would I for many an age yet leave the world empty of beings who might strive against the newcome men and do hurt to them ere their clans be grown to strength, while the nations and peoples of the earth are yet infants. The men are coming, and I don't want any strife between you. Okay, wait, so you're afraid the men are going to attack the elves? Because that would be bad, right? That'd be awful. No. No, I'm worried you're going to attack them, right? Because, you know, let me tell you, it is doomed, going to happen. It's in the uh, in all, unalterable music of the Ainur that the men are going to have dominion over the entire world. Uh, uh, and I would not have anything come between you. Um, I would rather keep the world clear of any other creatures that nobody messes with the men, you know, until they have time to establish themselves and get their dominion going, Right. Um, so that's why I don't want you guys to talk about going back to, uh, Middle-earth, because you might mess up the dominion of men that's coming, because the men are supposed to rule the outer world, you know, um, um, so stay put. It's not that his plan is a terrible plan, but what is his, what's his idea here? What's his plan in making this speech? To this he added many words concerning men and their nature, and the things that would befall them, and then, and then old Dolly were amazed, for they had not heard the Valar speak of men, say very seldom, and had not then heeded over much, deeming these creatures weak and blind and clumsy and beset with death, nor in any ways likely to match the glory of the Eldalier. Right? Yeah, we had figured that they were going to be pretty much a non-issue, and now you're telling us not not only a that they're going to have dominion over the entire world but b that you want to keep us out of their way right lest we interfere with the dominion um again it's not that any individual thing that manway says here is like a horrible thing to say um but this speech seems to at a stroke to confirm everything that Melkar told them about the attitude of the Valar towards the elves. They're trying to keep you locked up. They're not... Test them, he says, right? Go ahead and try to leave. See what happens. And what happens? Not only does Manway say, 
I forbid you to ever utter such words again in core, right? Um, but he then says, let me explain. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. The only reason I don't want you to go there is because I'm saving it that those lands for somebody else and I don't want you to have it. I mean, <laughs> Carolyn says, poor Manway, he's not very good at speaking extemporaneously. Um, yeah, he sort of does seem that way, doesn't he? Um, yeah, Sarah says, it seems like he's expecting the elves to think like the Valar in this, to have the Valar's perspective. Absolutely, Sarah. Look at the... What is tempting to call it naivete in Manway? Up there at the beginning, notice where I stopped in that first sentence just now? Um, he forbade the gnomes to utter such words in core if they desired still to dwell there among the other elves. They just said they didn't desire that anymore. I was like, if you say that again, I'm going to kick you out. But I was asking to leave, right? Which part of can we go and not dwell among the rest of the Elder anymore? Did you not understand? Right? I mean, it seems... Um, it seems a little odd that Manway doesn't seem to be... I mean, I agree, he does not really seem to be uh, in touch with how they're thinking. Of course, Feanor responds intemperately, right? Lo, now do we know the reason of our transportation hither, as it were, cargoes of fair slaves, right? Fano's going one step further, like, oh, now we see, right? Now this was your plot all along. You wanted to get us out of the way so the so the humans could dominate. I see, this whole dominion of men has been the plan all along, right? Now that's a little unjust, but it's not illogical, Right? It makes perfect sense, given what Manway just said. Now at length are we told to what end we are guarded here, robbed of our heritage in the world, ruling not the wide lands, lest perchance we yield them not to a race unborn. To these, forsooth, a sad folk, beset with swift mortality, a race of burrowers in the dark, clumsy of hand, untuned to songs or music, who shall dully labor at the soil with their rude tools. I don't know about you, are you getting offended? I'm, I'm feeling a little like, hey, race of burrowers in the dark, honestly. To these, whom still he says are of Iluvatar, would Manway Sulamo, lordling of the Ainur... Lordling of the Ainur Fanor, give the world and all the wonders of its land, all its hidden substances. Remember those hidden substances uh, that uh, you know will be uh, the instruments of their mighty craft that uh, that Melko is telling them about. Give it to these; that is our inheritance. Or what is this talk of the dangers of the world? A trick to deceive us, a mask of words. Oh, all ye children of the Noldoli, whomso will no longer be house thralls of the gods, however softly held, arise! I bid ye and get you from Valinor, for now is the hour come, and the world awaits. So we can see two things simultaneously in Feanor's speech. On the one hand, we can see, as is emphasized immediately after, that these are the words of Melko that he is voicing, right? You know, this is the... And we can see, we compare it back to the... We can see all of those things that we were noticing in the trend of Melko's temptation are all coming out here, right? Uh, Emphatically. We can see how those seeds that Melko has sown have taken root in Feanor's heart. Um, but at the same time, there's 
a little more justification? Um, you might think differently than I do, but when I read the Book of Lost Tales version of the uh, departure of the Noltoli, Feanor does not sound nearly like so much of an inexcusable jerk as he does in the published Silmarillion version. That is to say, I think that we are given more cause to see things from Feanor's point of view, to see things from the Noldoli's point of view. Their objections are much more plausible in this version. I mean, even without having the seeds sown, even without the the ways in which, you know, the, their thinking about the Valar has already been tainted, ways in which they've already lost their innocence and their innocent trust. Someone, I missed it a while ago, and I forget now who it was, was asking, who exactly were the Noldoli guarding their stuff from? And it's uncertain. I mean, did they not trust Melko? Probably they didn't trust Melko, but, um, and maybe they're just expecting possibly some random monster to come wandering in. But is there possibly the implication that they think somebody, some child of the Valar might come and try to take their stuff while they're not looking, right? Um, almost as if there is just this hint that maybe this whole celebration is like some kind of a bait-and-switch, right? We're going to, oh, come celebrate our union, right? Meanwhile, we're going to sneak in and take your stuff, right? I get, they don't say that explicitly, but is that maybe distantly in the back of their heads why they leave the guards in defiance of the ordinance of, of their lord, not lordling, Manway, right? Um... It seems implicit. So having 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 done that, you know, having having already had their suspicions aroused, their wariness grow, their um, uh, their innocence diminished. Um, gosh, boy, does Manway's speech sound bad. Boy, does it sound um, easy to misinterpret. I mean, I listened to that and I'm like, you know. Um, uh, I um I would think I, I don't think that Fanor's response is out of control here. Um I totally see where he's coming from. Having the suspicions that he has or has been led to have even by Milko having been deceived as he has from where they're standing it sounds like Manway has just explicitly confirmed. That's what Fanor is saying, right? Okay, so they've just admitted it. It's all true then, right? See, we are prisoners. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do think that the story more easily enables us to enter into Fanor's point of view and the Noldoli point of view. Um, then the darkening happens. Only after this are the trees destroyed. And I think the sequencing here has a profound impact on the narrative. The fact that this whole progression, this whole decline of the Noldoli happens prior to the darkening makes the darkening seem it's not like the last stroke right um uh rather 
it's more like the outward sign of the thing that's already happened, right? It's only an outward show. The bliss of Valinor has already had a shadow cast over it, right? That peace and happiness and wisdom that Manway was saying are more valuable than the all, whole glory of, 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 of Valmar, right? Um, those things have already been destroyed. The destruction of the trees... I mean, obviously it's a little... Uh, perhaps a little strong to say the destruction of the trees is a mere formality, right? But do you see what I mean by that? Um, it is merely a, an outward rendering of the thing that's already happened in this story. Um, uh, and I think that that's a, a really... It makes this moment a really powerful moment, a really powerful crystallization um, of this. Especially that tragic figure uh, of the elf who comes in and strikes at Ungoliant, right? And, uh, uh, and, and gets killed, and then his own sword... Uh, is used to destroy, um, uh, to destroy the other tree. Um, uh, it's um, um, that I th- thinking about the way that that scene um, sort of works in parallel to the, or, or works as, as almost as this sort of ironic um, counterpoint to the rebellion of the Noldoli. Here is this elf who is sacrificing his life. Um, uh, you know, a single-handedly attacking not only Milko, but uh, but you know <clears throat> um, the spider as well, um, on on Gueliante, um, and um, and sacrificing himself, and yet not only his sacrifice not uh, effective, um, but almost uh, but but f- ends up facil- facilitating uh, the. Uh, the destruction of the trees. It's its terrible. Um, but notice the reaction, Feanor's reaction to the darkening of the of the trees. But Feanor, standing in the square about Inway's house, in topmost core, will not be silenced, and cries out that all the Noldoli shall gather about him and hearken, and many thousands of them come to hear his words, bearing slender torches, so that that place is filled with a lurid light such as has never before shown on these on those white walls. Um, just thinking about that, um, again, this seems to me to have an almost sort of quasi-allegorical significance, right? The light of the glory and bliss of Valinor is darkened, it's gone, and all the Noldoli have to see by are the slender torches that themselves they themselves are carrying. It's like, you know, all they have are now are, is, is their own light, right? The light that each one of them is carrying. But it's a dim and lurid light that makes everything look different. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, it, it, the, the, the white walls uh, of Kor have never looked uh, as dark and dreary as they look by those, uh, by those lights. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Mark, let's uh, carry on here now. When they are gathered there, and Feanor sees that far the most of the company is of the kin of the Noldor, he exhorts them to seize now this darkness and confusion and the weariness of the gods to cast off the yoke, for thus demented he called the days of bliss in Valinor, and get them hence, carrying with them what they might or listed. 
If all your hearts be too faint to follow, behold, I, Feanor, go now alone into the wide and magic world, to seek the gems that are my own, and perchance many great and strange adventures will there befall me, more worthy of a child of Iluvatar than a servant of the gods. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice the darkening of the Valinor. The darkening of Valinor is not sort of the last straw that leads the Noldor to depart. It is merely the occasion that they seize in order to make it happen, right? Quick, while the Valar are distracted, now is the time to go, if we're going to go. Um, no new resolve comes upon Feanor and the rest of them at this point. Um, their minds have already been made up. Their minds were made up in the response to Manway's speech that he gave to them about men, right? This now is merely the opportunity. And yes, Neil, I, I also think that that balancing of child of Iluvatar on the one hand and servant of the gods on the other hand, the way that Feanor is implying that those two things are exclusive categories, right? Those two things are not compatible, when of course they should in fact be compatible. In fact, they should be in one sense anyway, almost identical. Um, and good Brian was just uh, pointing out a, a very similar thing there. Um, uh, that he paints his action as a choice between Iluvatar and the gods. Yeah, it's not only the sense of the stature, right? We are children of Iluvatar, not mere servants, right? Not not the Valar servants. Um, but yes, almost that... Oh gosh, we're choosing Iluvatar instead of the Valar, right? Not that he claims to be explicitly obeying Iluvatar, but almost, right? It's almost like based on their nature as the children of Iluvatar, they've been given a warrant for this. Their inheritance, I keep talking about their inheritance, right? Inheritance from whom? From Iluvatar, right? Iluvatar gave them this world, and by golly, their inheritance is being kept from them. In fact, their inheritance is being stolen and given to somebody else, right? So, let's seize our inheritance. Let's do... And so, in a sense, Brian, in a warped and twisted and demented sense, it is... Uh, he is choosing Iluvatar over the Valar and speaking as if the Valar are in opposition to Iluvatar. Um, and again, like the words of Melko before him, we see the blurring of distinctions, the plausibility of these things, and yet the blurring of these really crucial distinctions. But it, again, it seems to me the difference between Feanor and Melko is that Feanor genuinely believes this stuff. Um, he is not deceiving people. He is simply deceived. He is simply himself confused. He no longer sees these distinctions, um, uh, rather than himself consciously blurring the lines. Then we get um, the kinslaying, and of course you'll notice that the kinslaying is not in the very first conception, right? At first they were just going to come and steal the ships. Then Tolkien goes backwards at an unknown amount of time later and says, no, we need to add in the kinslaying, right? And he, he adds that block of text that Christopher Tolkien describes. Um, let's look at it. So did the Noldoli embark all their women folk and children, and a great host beside upon those ships, and casting them loose, they oared them with a great multitude of oars towards the seas. 
Then did a great anger blaze in the hearts of the shoreland pipers, seeing the theft of those vessels that their cunning and long labors had fashioned. And some there were that the gods had made of had made of old, on tall Arisea, as has been recounted, wondrous and magic boats, the first that ever were. So sprang up suddenly a voice among them, Never shall these thieves leave the haven in our ships. And all those of the Solosimpi that were there ran swiftly atop the cliff wall to where the archway was, was where through that fleet must pass. And standing there they shouted to the gnomes to return. But these heeded them not, and held ever on their course, and the Solosimpi threatened them with rocks, and strung their elfin bows. Seeing this, and believing war already to be kindled, came now those of the gnomes who might not fare aboard the ships, but whose part it was to march along the shores. And they sped behind the Solosimpi, until coming suddenly upon them, nigh the haven's gate, they slew them bitterly, or cast them in the sea. And so first perished the Eldar, neath the weapons of their kin. And that was a deed of horror. A deed of horror. But notice... Again, the direction that this seems to me to go is of sympathy. This is more... It's, an, it's a deed of horror, yes. But it's not merely an abominable crime. Rather, it's a tragedy. Um, or at least has significantly tragic elements. We look at the escalation of events, right? Obviously, the Noldoli are in the wrong. I'm not trying to say that, like, oh, they were innocent, and gosh, it could have happened to anybody. Obviously, they were in the wrong. The Noldoli seized their ships and go against their protest. Um, but notice how is how much more greatly is emphasized the the way that this escalates and the sort of misunderstandings that lead to its escalation. First, you have the Noldoli coming and taking the ships, and the Solosimpi saying, stop, stop, until that voice comes up among them, right? Never shall these thieves leave the haven in our ships. Chuck asks, who was that, right? Um, whose voice was that? We don't know, right? It's fascinating that we were not told that. Um, Chuck asked, could it be Melko? I was kind of wondering the same thing, Chuck, I have to admit. Um, doesn't that sound like the voice of a tempter? Because it's that saying, right? They were lamenting and crying out and calling for them to return. And it's that voice, that nameless, sourceless voice that leads them, that tips them over to violence, right? To say, no, we must forcibly resist they're taking these ships. And notice the Solosimpi's decision. They're, they're not only shooting bows, they have rocks. Do you see the significance of that? They're not only preparing violence against the Noldor. They're preparing violence against the ships. Um, the Solosimpi are now willing to say, if you are going to take our ships from, we would rather sink the ships than have you take them. And I can't help but think of that as a corrupted conclusion. The Solosimpi have also lost their innocence. They are not the innocent, they are not merely the innocent victim of the Noldoli here. Um, what we get is not the picture, which anyway I've always gotten from the published Silmarillion, of the Noldor coming in, taking the ships, and killing 
the the Teleri in the published uh, Silmarillion, right? Um, and then the you know the Shoreland Pipers, let us call them, um, you know, then trying to defend themselves and and uh, and then getting further attacked by the rest of the Noldor. That's not what happens, right? The idea of violence again, violence not only against the Noldor but against their own ships comes into their hearts and they are preparing to act on it. And then, seeing them with their rocks and their bows preparing to do violence, and indeed intending violence against the Noldoli, do the other gnomes come up from behind, believing that war is already coming, not realizing that they, the gnomes who are coming up, the reinforcements who are coming up, are actually the ones, as far as we can see, to shed the first blood. Right? They think the war is already underway. They think that they are under attack because it looks like the Noldor are under the Noldoli are under attack by the Solasimpi, right? It it very naturally looks like that. So they come up and they join in the fight, actually starting the fight. Um, and then the other Solosimpi come up behind them, seeing now the gnomes attacking their people from the rear. Now it looks like a cowardly sneak attack. The Noldoli planned this, right? They were luring the Solosimpi up so that these other Noldor could then spring out of hiding and slaughter them from behind. Oh, those terrible Noldoli, right? And so the other Solosimpi come up behind them and slay them. Um, And, you know, barely do they win their way back to the cliffs. The whole process... Um, the whole process by which uh, this... Okay, sorry, I, I, I know my... I don't know what happened there. I seem to have a little uh, glitch in my uh, my internet connection there. Um, can you hear me better now? Okay. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, the, the way in which this escalation occurs, the way in which, uh, you know, it, through misunderstandings on each side this whole thing gets terribly out of hand. Um, makes, I mean, yes, the whole thing is still precipitated by the Noldoling. No question that the whole thing is their fault. But they're not just the criminals. They're not merely the villains of the piece. Feanor is not merely the villain of the piece as he was before. Um, I, I say before, as he will be later, right? Um, Instead, what we see is that corruption spreading. We see the solo simpi on their own recapitulating, the, the de- independently recapitulating the decisions that the Noldoli made. We see them also falling from peace and happiness and wisdom in their own reactions, right? And that's tragic. Even more tragic than seeing the Noldoli kill the solo simpi, it would in a sense have been Bear with me here. I hope you can see what I what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to say here. Had the story merely given us the solo simpi in innocence, right, sitting there strumming harps, right, and the um, uh, the Noldoli come in and slaughter them with them, the solo simpi not raising a hand to resist, that would have been a deed of horror. But in its way, less tragic than seeing the solo simpi themselves in their response to this crime of the Noldolian stealing their ships, themselves make choices which are corrupt, themselves depart from the path of peace 
and happiness and wisdom. And I think that that is, in fact, what we see here. The result of the theft of the ships, the result of the kinslaying, is not only just this, you know, this blood crime that has been committed. It is that. But it's not only that. It's also that now what they leave behind them, the solo simpi that are left behind, now too have made these choices. Now too have become, in a sense, corrupt as well. So, Ariel's reflection... Great was the power of Melko for ill, saith Ariel, if he could indeed destroy with his cunning the happiness and glory of the gods and of the elves, darkening the light of their hearts no less than of their dwelling, and bringing all their love to naught. This must surely be the worst deed that ever he has done. Of a truth never has such evil again been done in Valinor, said Lindo, but Melko's hand has labored at worse things in a world, in the world, and the seeds of his evil have waxen since those days to a great and terrible growth. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, first of all, I love Lindo's response, right? When Ariel's like, that must be the worst thing Melko ever did. And Lindo's like, ah, it's not for lack of trying, right? He uh, he had a go later on <laughs> trying to do worse things. Um, but I can't blame him for not trying. Um, but, um, uh, but, 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 yeah, I, notice Ariel is, seems to be right to say, you know, it, very much in, you know, Ariel seems to be a, an attentive listener to the story that he's been told when, in the conclusion, he doesn't just, you know, his response is not, wow, so the trees were lost. Remember, in his response to the previous tale, right, at the end of the tale, the tale of Meryl Eterinki, when he heard the end of the coming of the elves, and he says to her, he's like, man, what could ever make the elves want to leave? That sounds amazing, right? With the trees and everything, and wow, um, that must have been perfect. How, why would they ever want to go? And now, instead of lamenting over the lost trees, which is a sufficient subject of lament, without lamenting over the lost Silmarils, right? What he laments over, what Ariel laments over, is that the happiness and glory of both the gods and the elves have been destroyed. That, uh, the, that the light of their hearts was darkened no less than of their dwelling, that all of their love was brought to naught. Notice, that's the tragedy, right? It's not that they didn't have love, or they didn't have enough love, but that all of their love, because there was love on both sides, has been brought to nothing, was twisted and corrupted. This must surely be the worst deed that ever he has done. Um... I think that this is a re- that's this is this is a really perceptive synopsis by Ariel, and it is very much the trend that that I see in this version of the story. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sarah King says, "Not too bad for a blind, weak earth burrower, Ariel." Uh, <laughs> yes, good point, Sarah. Good point. Um, yes, for uh, for somebody dully toiling uh, in the in the muck, he's. Uh, He's doing okay for himself. Um, uh, Chuck asks, why did uh, Tolkien move from the more complex and subtle story in The Lost Tales to a simpler and more direct tale in The Silmarillion? Well, I think it's not quite that simple. I mean, the tale, the version in The Silmarillion is doing 
different things. I don't think it's necessarily um, it's necessarily less profound. I don't think it's a flatter or 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 oversimplified story or anything like that. But it is a different story. It does have a different kind of emphasis to it, um, and there's a different sort of consequence to it. Um, and you know, as for the why, um, yeah, as as for the why, I don't know. Um, you know, it's one of the things that is fascinating, though, in studying through the entire history of Middle Earth series, is to watch the story grow and change. Watch how, you know, thinking of this here, you know, what is the story of the fall of the uh, of the Noldoli? Um, you know, their fall from grace, their fall from glory. Um, uh, how that story comes about. How What is emphasized in that story. Um, to compare that with what we get in other, you know, to see how those emphases shift, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes um, uh, in in bigger ways, um, is one to me one of the fascinating things about it. Now, of course, as Robert Brown is reminding us, a big part of the shift is what I was talking about last week. That is, you know, what I was emphasizing last week, that shift in the kind of story that it is, right? From a tale to the annal tradition, as Robert calls it, that uh, what Christopher Tolkien calls the epitomizing version of the story. Um, This is not just a synopsis, right? We're in closer to this, and therefore, you know, it's it's sort of done in a different way. But... um, uh, And it's true. Certainly true. Um, but I do think that we see some differences between this story and the later story, which are not to me explained by the mere compression of the story. That is, ways in which not just things have been made tighter, as Christopher Tolkien says, but that they are um, the way in which the sequence actively changes and the rationale for things, and, you know, like Feanor's speeches. Um, you, know, you look at Feanor's speeches, and the things that Feanor's speeches are responding to, in the Book of Lost Tales version, uh, and compare it to Feanor's speeches in the Silmarillion. A huge difference. Feanor is very different, and is acting on very different grounds. Okay. Well, hmm. Uh... I knew I wouldn't get to the nature of the Valar. I'd hoped to get to the nature of evil, but I'm uh, looks like I'm probably not going to get to here tonight. We'll start with that next time. I'm not going to pass over Ungoliant entirely. I, you know, we we got to go back and look at Ungoliant. We didn't do that tonight, so we'll do that uh, next time, and we'll be thinking thinking some more about these different trends. You know, Robert, what you were just talking about, because I think we do see in the entire relationship that we as hearers of these tales have with the Valar in particular um, by the sort of genre of the story them being tales instead of annals in that way I think this is to me the most radical difference between the Lost Tales and the later Silmarillion tradition and I want to look at that a little bit in a little bit more detail next time and then we'll get, I promise we will get to the tale of the sun and moon. Um, next week, we're only, I'm only asking you to read the chapter of, on the tale of the sun and moon, because it's quite long. Um, and we are going to talk about the tale of the sun and moon, um, but I do want to talk about those other two things first. So, I don't think we'll get too much further behind. 
very small likelihood of it. Anyway, thanks very much for joining me tonight, and uh, I look forward to talking to you guys again next week. Thanks very much. Bye!